go to Mum's, kill Phil, sorry, grab Liz, go to the Winchester, have a nice cold pint, and wait for all this to blow over. How's that for a slice of fried gold? Yeah, boy! So I just want to tell you, as a, as an outsider looking in on America, y'all are doing great. Oh yeah, it's fantastic. Good job, all around, I, um, everybody. It's it's weird for me because I'm doing fine. <laughs> I am fantastic. Nothing is wrong in my life, and so it just feels weird to hear how bad it's going everywhere else. Because I almost feel guilty. Like I I have friends in New York. You know, and I'm just like, oh, those poor, poor people. Yeah. And then I just go into my living room with my cup of tea and sit with my daughter and have my job. The, the only thing and that's I'm changed like, for you is that you can't go anywhere. Yeah, but I have a daughter. I couldn't go anywhere to begin with. No, like, but I mean, you can't go single... get a burger if you want. <laughs> that is true, but I didn't do that that much to begin with. A <laughs> so lifetime. Really nothing's changed. I see. Wait, 10 years ago, my life would have been hell if it was like you couldn't go anywhere. But like after having a daughter... And working from home before even all this stuff went down. It's like I, I the last year and a half has prepared me for this <laughs> so well. The last year and a half has basically been you stockpiling a bunker. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's like, all right, I got all my cooking skills. I figured out that I don't need to go out every day. I am happy to sit on my couch that, you know what? watch a movie that I've already seen. I gotta be honest, that's the best thing I've heard all week, so thank you for that. <laughs> Greetings and salutations, my name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to a matinee cast presentation of the Winchester Chronicles. This is Dispatch number four. Our mission is this, COVID-19 is affecting everybody's lives. Obviously, that includes being able to go to the movies. That means our usual discussions of cinematic passion and perspective need to wait. However, it doesn't mean the overall film discussion has to stop. So while we wait for the whole thing to blow over, we virtually sit here in our virtual Winchester pub and turn our attention to the best films of a decade gone by instead of the new releases we usually cover. Today, the show strays a little further from home, virtually, virtually. Much as I want to stray from home, I'm being a responsible person staying close to home, but thanks to the same technology we're all using to hold department meetings and check in with our friends and family, I can reach across the border for the first time in the Chronicles and bring in an old friend for a guest spot. He and I go way back. We've argued about big films, we've bonded over small films, we've laughed at running jokes involving boy bands, and even attended a film festival or two. He is head cheese over at the Film Stage podcast, and we're happy to have him across the wire from D.C. Brian J. Rowan is here. How are you doing, man? Up, I'm doing great. Why, why is everyone so upset? <laughs> can, can I, I want to like, I want to put that out on Twitter, quote it to you. It's great. <laughs> on, <laughs> it's, it, like on my podcast, we do, cause we have guests on all the time. And so we're like, it's the COVID corner. Like let's the quarantine corner. Let's talk about how we're doing. And I'm just like the guy who's like, everyone else is like, if we're trying to find things to do at home, you know, binge watching stuff and everything. And I'm like, I am running around like a madman. I'm so tired all the time. I've never been busier. Everything is so hectic. And people just look at me as though I were speaking another language and legitimately like praying to the great God Cthulhu. 
<laughs> well, get me on your show and I'll add a little bit of color as somebody who hasn't worked for six weeks. And, uh, you know, I, let's put it this way. I discovered today, uh, reflecting on one month's worth of reading in isolation, it's not as much fun as I thought it would be. So I can talk about that on air shows if you want. <laughs> on our fourth dispatch of the Winchester Chronicles, we will be discussing beginners. We'll be turning the record over to play the other side. But first, we begin with Creature Comforts. So again, Creature Comforts, if you're new to this whole experiment, um, we were talking about what what we're doing, what we're... <laughs> I mean, I was going to say, Brian just kind of stole the thunder on this one because he talked about how his life is normal or as close to it as it can be. But what we're doing to keep us company while we can't go out and do anything else, which Brian doesn't do anyway. Start us off, buddy, in your not-quite-quarantine. What, uh, what have you been up to to keep you mildly a little bit more sane? So what's what's crazy is that when this all happened and theaters shut down, one of the guys on my podcast was like, we should take this opportunity to really go back and look at some classics. Like, I don't know, The Seven Seals, like Black Narcissus. And I was like, I know that you guys are stuck in home and you're not doing anything. And it may feel like the perfect time to do that. But I just started a distillery in January. We are still working and also now we're producing hand sanitizer. And so I'm working like an extra five hours a day on top of the nine to five that I still have. Again, by the grace of God, blessedly, so happy to have it. So I'm not one of these people who's like, I'm going to hit my blind spots. <laughs> I have been rewatching the things that have given me joy because in the two hours that I have at the end of the night before I pass out from exhaustion, I just want something comfortable. So... For instance, um, I started rewatching Community, uh, oh, the yeah. NBC show starring Joel McHale and uh, Gillian Jacobs and Allison Brie and Donald Glover. It's uh, it's still so good. <laughs> and in these trying times where everything seems to be going crazy, what's better than watching a band of misfits come together as an unlikely family? It's funny because on the one hand, I actually was thinking in my head. I have not revisited Community since it ended. And much like many shows, I think I petered out maybe a season and a half before it actually ended. So mm -hmm. you could have told me that it ended with Greendale exploding and I would have to believe you because I don't well, actually. What? Really? <laughs> There's that's no, that's not that's not what happened. But there is. <laughs> so when you said when it ended, I was going to ask which time. Right. Because I think it got canceled like twice. Probably. Um, but the funny thing is that one of the seasons, I think they knew that they were on the bubble again. And Abed, the, the character who's very meta and is always breaking the fourth wall, legitimately says, like, if we don't come back, it means that we were struck by a meteor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so it's my like, God. yeah, if you stopped watching after that, then technically it did end with it, everyone. It exploding. Yeah. Yeah. No. So I so I, I was actually thinking that that may be a show that I, I go back and revisit right now. My my I'm going to put on something and just kind of veg while it's on uh, show is I'm working my way through Bojack Horseman. So I, I, I kind yes. of I, like that kind of fills the community basket at the moment. So if like once I get done with Bojack, I'll probably move over to community because I do want to go back and rewatch everything because I, I, you know, I saw it once and I saw a couple of reruns and everything like that. But I, I certainly haven't seen it since it finished. I think what would be weirdest for me rewatching that show, though, is 
seeing Donald Glover, who has gone on to be this like huge star, be just one member of the ensemble. Mm-hmm. It, it's funny because he, if it were to be made now, he would be the Joel McHale slash Chevy Chase. Yeah. He would be the like the pull. Yeah. The known quantity. Right. Which he, is, is weird. It is weird to see him kind of like coming into his own as a comedic on-screen presence. And I think that was probably the world's introduction to Donald Glover. It was certainly mine. Um, I know he was doing things before that. Like, like he was writers on, on all kinds of shows. Um, yeah. And I, I, he turns up in the background of a lot of stuff. Like, I think he turned up in the background of the Muppets uh, for, for a hot second. Um, but yeah, that, that would be the... He was weird. like an NBC player. Like, he, I think he wrote for SNL. I know he wrote for Saturday or um, 30 Rock. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. And he was in an episode of 30 Rock. Yeah, so it, that would be the weirdest thing for yeah. me is basically seeing childish gambino as you know the show's cliff clavin or norm like <laughs> take take your pick the, and then you got to remind yourself that two of the directors from that show went on to make avengers movies so yeah very weird to see joe and anthony russo's name at the beginning of the credits yeah. as like executive producers yeah it's, it's I mean, like oh they made the most uh <laughs> the, the highest grossing film of all time yeah <laughs> which at this point will probably stand for a while um yeah. well, not the same as like ryan johnson doing like episodes of breaking bad where you're like ah oh, the authorial voice here you're just like i guess the russo brothers yeah it was stood I, behind I, the cameras and yeah, told them I, what I, to do. yeah i i'm, I'm still i'm, I'm I, I was when those movies started coming out i think their first job was winter soldier and when those movies first started coming out, I'm like, I think I had it in my head that it was the Hughes brothers. I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> not, not, not those ones. No, no. These are the community guys. I'm like, get out of here. There's no way. <laughs> no, nope. Clearly. Um, yep. Well, you know, since we're talking shows, the one of my creature comforts, um, I used to say, and I still do say that if you're working a nine to five job, that the best part of the week is Monday morning. You are never further away from the weekend than you are right that moment. So really, it's just it's if you can get to that point, it's all downhill. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Anywho, where I'm going with this is that now um, the best part of my week actually is Monday morning because that is when Netflix puts up new episodes of The Last Dance which is the documentary series that's being done uh, with Netflix and ESPN on the 1990 Chicago Bulls. I have heard about this. It's funny that you say like, that's when Netflix posts new episodes. Cause I'm pretty sure here in America, we don't get that on Netflix for a while. I mean, you guys are getting it on ESPN on Sunday nights, yep. which is bonkers for me. Cause that's when every other show is on. Like that is, if you wanted to take the worst time to put something up, that's, that's when to do it. Uh, I've got way too many. Yeah. That's way- like HBO's night. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What are you doing? What are you new? It's it so they show up on on Monday mornings and it's a ten part documentary series on hanging the whole thing on the final championship the nineteen ninety seven ninety eight championship because that was the season they went into knowing that it was going to be their last kick they were going to be parting ways with the coach and Jordan was already saying that he wouldn't play for another coach so they were framing it as all right we got one last ride to try to hang another banner. Let's see what we can do. Now we of course know that they managed to hang another banner. Um, but along with that framing device, they're using it as an excuse to just basically talk about the entire Chicago bulls dynasty. So 10 episodes, all talking about the 1990s bulls with the, you know, perspective of about 20 years is pretty darn cool. And I was, 
into basketball by this point, but it's covered a little bit differently up here. Like, you know, first of all, just sports in general was covered differently at the time. You know, um, there weren't there, there wasn't a 24 hour news and gossip cycle. So you didn't have quite the amount of talking heads that you do now. There was no such thing as NBA Twitter, which there is now. And, and just a lot of the rumors and the infighting and that, all that kind of stuff. I wasn't nearly as aware of as a young fan. So watching this documentary and learning about just how much was going on behind the scenes is really eye-opening. The penultimate episode that aired last Monday uh, was all hanging around Dennis Rodman. That's the other interesting thing is so far, they've kind of framed every episode around one personality. And the third episode was all framed around Dennis Rodman. And it gets to the end of that episode and it paints the fact that I did not know that Dennis Rodman, in the middle of the season, asked the coach for a vacation. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. He's like, yeah, 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 exactly. He's like, I need time off. And I did not like, I did not know that. I certainly did not know that the coach then turned around and said, ask Jordan if he says it's okay, I'm okay with it, which also strikes me as nuts. And then of course, Dennis Rodman being who he is, takes the 48 hours that the team has granted him to go to Vegas and turns it into being gone for the better part of a week. Oh my God. Yeah. I knew that. uh, So as a, as a child, I was not that into sports. And as you said, like, we covered it differently back then. No one was on Twitter. It did not exist. Um, you know, I don't know when like, you know, sports channels, like cable sports only channels really became a thing. But even then with my very limited knowledge of anything sport, um, I knew the Chicago bulls. I had a lot of friends who loved the Chicago bulls because they were the Yankees, you know, of basketball. It was just like, they're an indomitable force and they are so good that you have to pay homage to them. And I, knew a couple of things about a couple of guys and I, everyone knew that Rodman was like a weird prima donna never went to practice kind of guy. Yeah. Like the, when he, it's funny because when so they weird to hear when, that level, when they re, <laughs> yeah, when they retrieve him from Vegas, he shows up to practice in his pajamas. It's, it's insane to see this and it's just, it's really cool to see it in, in hindsight because it was the kind of, it's the kind of thing dynasties in sports and dynasties in the NBA, you never know when they're going to start and you certainly know, never know when they're going to end. So to kind of encapsulate the whole thing, you gotta, you really got to wait and give it perspective. The game has mm-hmm. changed so much. It's really, I mean, I would venture to say that if you're not a sports man, it's still really interesting to see the ups and downs of how this whole thing came together. Um, you know, if, if you're curious, give it, you know, give it an episode or two and even just kind of, marvel at like the styles in the late 90s that's kind of a trick uh what else so what you had something else that you were saying has been keeping you a company in your in your not quite so oh yeah <laughs> boredom on the opposite end of the a bunch of level misfits coming together is like a caring family unit um is archer oh yeah where it's a bunch of of hateful misanthropic misfits constantly shooting each other <laughs> um I never, I never saw the end of Archer. I guess like you with community, like I, I petered out at some point. Um, but like Archer was a big thing for my, the house that I lived in with a bunch of other people. Like we would always watch the new episodes together. And I guess once I left that environment or once 
you start to grow up like you can't make that amount of time anymore. And so I was like, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to rewatch this from front to back. <laughs> and um, it's it that if, if you've never seen Archer, it's an animated spy caper show that at some point pivots into just being about these people doing random stuff. Uh, at some point after they've aban- abandoned the spying thing, they try to sell a bunch of cocaine. Uh, <laughs> they have a private detective season. And then like the last three seasons, I think are like weird departure fever dreams. Pretty much. But they, yeah, they, they maintain the same characters and the same dynamics, but put them into different genres. And so I, it's just interesting to go back and watch through it and see the, the evolution of the show and the characters, all the different jokes that I guess I kind of forgot that me and my friends stole from Archer. <laughs> um, for instance, phrasing. phrasing. That's, I was going to say, that's usually where it starts. Phrasing, danger zone. Um, the, the, the story of how my dog got her name is that we <laughs> were all hanging out. We bought this dog as a house which was a laughable idea, but it worked for a little while <laughs> until I eventually became her sole caretaker. But we were like, what are we going to name her? Cause she got a She had a name at the rescue, but they're like, you know, she doesn't really respond to it. If you start training her immediately, she'll pick up a new name. And we were like, what's a name that we can all agree on. And, uh, no one knew. And then I was like, well, here, let's think of it backwards. Like, let's say she gets out. What's a name that we're going to feel comfortable screaming across the neighborhood. And one of the people in the house who watched Archer with us all the time just said, Lana! (laughs) And so that's why my dog is named Lana. Lana. Exactly. (laughs) Genius. A couple things. First of all, I'll be happy to report Archer is actually still going. It's still going? It's still still new episodes happening? Yep. Now, I don't know when the new season is supposed to arrive. Oh, my God. I had to look this up because I did not believe you. It is true. It is totally still happening. Once they they move to the little self-contained fever dream. Now, I don't know what they're going to do because they did kind of paint themselves into a corner at the end of the last sci-fi space fever dream, which, by the way, that was weird. Um uh, so so I don't but I don't know when it's supposed to show up again. It's usually showing up right around now. And because I haven't seen any new episodes showing up, I got to believe that just like everything else, it's been delayed. That's number one. Number two, one of the things I always come back to with Archer is kind of like, you know, you're having um, conversations with your friends and whatever. And you're like, are you a uh, are, are you a are you a stairway to heaven person or are you a free word person are you an oasis person or are you a blur person i'll call up a picture of h john benjamin and i'll say okay <laughs> when you see this man and you hear his voice do you think about archer or do you think about bob's burgers because and then usually, there's going to be the one the one jerk in your group who says coach mcgurk yes yeah, <laughs> screw that i did love that in the middle of everything there was an epi- there was a crossover episode between the two where Archer is uh, he's in the Bob's Burger set, but it's all in the Archer style of animation. Yes, I did love I did really love that. Um, but the two characters, Bob and Sterling, could not be so very different that it's so funny that the same guy vo- like voices both. And yet and he doesn't do a different voice no, for them. Like, no. that's the thing is he's not like he's just the doing guy his... who voices Bender, whose name escapes me, who who can like change his voice. He's just doing the same voice, but just inhabiting a completely different persona. Yeah. It's 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 great. No. So, OK, so you've been how, how far into Archer did you get? 
I'm in like season six now. It's it's a little easier to get through Archer because it's usually like 12 to 13 episodes a season. Yeah, and they're like 20 minutes. And they're a half hour long. Yeah. Well, my other creature comfort that's been keeping me company in between uh, The Last Dispatch and this uh, actually began today and it's going to continue tomorrow. Uh, if you're listening to this when it drops, you still have a chance to kind of jump on this. Otherwise, you're going to miss your shot. So in England, um, the National Theatre Company, um, they do a thing called National Theatre Live, where throughout the year, they'll actually stream their stage productions to movie theaters uh, around the world. One of the things that National Theatre has decided to do during isolation is they are handpicking some of their shows and putting them onto YouTube for small periods of time, usually either like three days, five days, seven days at the most. This week, what they put up was actually when I was really looking forward to seeing again. They did back in, I want to say 2010 or 2011, uh, around the time of the movie that we're about to talk about, they did a production of Frankenstein that was... Okay, yeah, I heard yeah, about that. Directed by Danny Boyle. Uh, and starred mm-hmm. Johnny Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch. And every other night, either Cumberbatch or Miller would be, one would be the monster, the other would be the doctor, and then the next night they would switch. So it's actually a play that you kind of hmm. need to see twice. So National Theatre, they put up Cumberbatch as monster uh, today, which is, today is April 30th, um, and that'll stay online until I believe May 6th. Um, and then tomorrow, tomorrow being May 1st, they're going to put up um, Johnny Lee Miller as the monster, and that'll stay up until May 7th. So it's, first of all, it's it's great being able to see like live theater, because that, that was literally the last thing I did before we all went into isolation was I saw a stage show. I, I managed to just squeak in to see Hamilton before my city completely closed down. And I remember actually sitting in that theater. Like, I mean, I'm married to a theater nerd, so I've seen more stage productions in the last 18 years than I did in probably the, my entire previous life combined. But I knew when I was going to see that last production, I was like, I don't know when the next time I'm going to be here is. And sure enough, it's one of those things that's really closing and seems to be basically wiping out the year. So being able to see the live theater at home um, is really cool. Being able to see this particular production, which I adore, is fantastic. Like Danny Boyle, you know, he's a great director who sometimes can do some weird shit. Like the man has, the man gave us train spotting, but the you man made al- trance. Yeah, I was gonna say the man also gave us trance. Okay, and eh. but he, as a live director, does some really, really beautiful things with this production um friend of the show simon Collum actually like he managed to go see it live because i mean he lives in london so that's what he does but yeah it's it's really amazing to Mm. see um the two actors doing the same parts and where they're the same and where they're different and where they're trying to mimic each other and some things that they do in as doctor they kind of later mimic as monster it's awesome to see and it was it was great that when national theater started putting up some of their shows on YouTube that this is one of the ones they tapped. I didn't know that they switched roles like, um, Oh, there's another famous example of that. I think John C. Riley and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Back in the day, I can't remember what it was called, but same thing. Riley and Hoffman. Every true West could be, 
um, every other night they switched. And I know there was a lot of little gestures and stuff that they each tried to make sure that they got the same way. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's that, it's that same idea. So, I mean, first of all, it's great because you don't just kill three hours. You really kill six because you got to watch it twice. <laughs> um, and, and as I said, you get a little bit something different than just watching, you know, musicians live stream into your home every day, just something a little bit different than, movies and TV and the, those are kind of what's carrying me through is those little different things like being able to live stream quest loves DJ sets and live stream national theater live and that kind of thing. It's just a little bit of a break from all of the sitcoms and movies and, and those kinds of, of wormholes. So those are our creature comforts. Well, my yeah. creature comforts really Brian's just calling this Thursday <laughs> for, for just my viewing of- habits have changed. Cause like I am, I am finding that I'm less likely to take a chance on something new, but That's again, just because I, I'm weirdly more busy than ever, and oh, so yeah, my yeah, time right. has become more precious. Okay, you're, watch, I can't you're watching. Sit around with making intent. focaccia. It was Hoffman and Riley doing True West, which is Sam Shepard's play. Nice. Uh, maybe I'll, uh, I'll give that a read because every once in a while I do like to read a play. Um, well, we have a feature dispatch to discuss, and our feature for dispatch number four is beginners. Come on back right after this. Beginners was released in 2011. It was written and directed by Mike Mills. It stars Ewan McGregor, Christopher Plummer, and Melanie Laurent. Beginners takes us back to 2003, when a highly infectious disease had the world on edge and a dumb old white guy was president of the United States. Weird, the way some way things never change. (laughs) The film introduces us to Oliver, that's Ewan McGregor, who four years ago lost his mother to cancer. Shortly after his mom passed away, his father, Hal, that's Christopher Plummer, came out of the closet. Unfortunately for Hal, there wasn't too much time to truly explore and enjoy this new reality since Hal will be diagnosed with lung cancer and die four years later. As the film jumps forward and back in time, we watch Oliver learn about the world as a child, adapt to his father's new sexual identity. We witness him grieving and sorting through the mementos of Hal's life when he dies. And we watch him begin a tender relationship with a French actress named Anna and bond with Hal's Jack Russell, Arthur. Late in the film, Oliver shows us an image that used to belong to his mother. It's a picture of a hand holding out a bunch of daisies, and Oliver declares its meaning to us. Here is simple and happy. That is what I meant to give you. Obviously, that theme is all over this film, as it deals with the loss of two parents, what their lives meant to Oliver, and also to us in hindsight. But it got me thinking about the film on the whole. So, pop quiz, hotshot. Do you think Beginners is meant as something simple and happy, or is it something altogether different? Uh, given the fact that I watch this movie and every time it happens, I, I cry. I would say not simple and happy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think this movie does a great job at explicating a lot of feelings that we don't see in movies that much. Um, one of them is the true difficulty of feeling as though you are, in fact, beginning again (laughs) like there's a line where uh, oliver says like i'm 40 years old and i'm like in falling in love with some girl yeah like 
it's it's a uh, it's crazy. I I'm turning 33 next month, um, and it's I have that feeling. Like, am I really at a place in my life where I am like allowed or even capable of like falling in love again? Like, is that a thing that's on the table for me? And this movie really gets into that and shows it on a number of levels. It shows it for Oliver and of course for Hal and letting Hal live his own experience, but also serve as a kind of sad token of possibility for, for Oliver too. It's just, it's such a beautiful, deceptively complex film that I just, I, I return to it like two or three times a year just because like when I need to watch like a perfect object that doesn't have like a false emotional note, it's there for me. It's funny. I do think that beginners is simple. It's certainly not happy, although it is joyful. Mm-hmm. Like quite often, this is a rather joyful story, um, but it's certainly not what I'd call oh, a yeah. happy story. It is really simple because, you know, I, I'm, I'm able to summarize it in like three sentences. It's, it's not, you know, it's not Tarkovsky is what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> I guess that's true. Yes. If that's your, if that's, <laughs> if that's really your measuring stick for simplicity, it's like, yeah, it's so simple. <laughs> but I mean, it, it's kind of, you know, it, it is kind of like, um, like that picture, you know, on the one hand, it can just be a hand holding out a bunch of daisies that somebody just snapped and didn't think anything of. On the other hand, it could be something that a photographer really meticulously worked at and crafted and, you know, tried to get it just so and framed it just so, so that when you look at it, you'll feel the maximum amount of, of, of joy from it. Um, you know, sometimes the simplest things are actually really, really hard to pull off. And I think that's, where beginners really shows it's metal because like you say, like there's a lot of complex things going on within it, a lot of introspection, but yet the plot is so simple. Like the, you know, the, the, the plot is father comes out as gay. Father is dying of cancer. Really? Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's beautiful to see that something does not need to, be a box within a box within a box to really be affecting right. as a film. Um, you chose this as, as the, as the film. I was, um, I was a little surprised when I reached out to you and said, what are some of the movies you thought were the best of the last decade? And this was on your list because, um, this is, I feel like when we talk about the best films of the decade, please hear the capital letters in my voice. Um, <laughs> that this is not the kind of film that would come up within the, the, average 25 which is good because i mean the average 25 is what we covered on this most of what we covered on this show over the last 10 years so i want to kind of get into the other inclusions now i'm not to say that this is not one of the best films of the decade i do believe it is but why does this movie land for you as one of the best of the last 10 years i mean there's a lot in this movie that could go wrong the dog speaks with subtitles (laughs) like if you hear that about like a romantic comedy you're like oh boy that's not what I want in my life. But it is interesting to see the kind of reflection of Oliver's mindset on the face of this dog. <laughs> and also, it this this movie was released the same year as The Artist. Yeah. And everyone was like, oh, Uggy and The Artist is so great. He's the best dog. And I was like, did no one see Beginners? Because there was a better dog this year. <laughs> and no one is talking about him. And 
I think that in terms of kind of capturing a moment, you know, the movie was released in 2010, but it takes place in 2003 and just running through it is running through so many important social and societal changes, but not losing the story of the character, which is a, a, a trap that a lot of movies like this can fall into. It's just a perfect melding of like good Hollywood progress with like uh, firm, emotional, almost old school melodramatic storytelling. And I think that, you know, all of the performances in it are just amazing. Like Ewan McGregor's never been better. Christopher Plummer's uh, obviously Oscar winning. Great. Uh, Melanie Laurent is wonderful. And even, uh, Gorn, uh, Nick. I, I hope you can pronounce his name cause I sure can't. I think it's Viznik. Let's go with that. I mean, he's, he's fantastic in this. Like I, his character, like, and his relationship with Arthur, just like, or Oliver rips my heart out every time I see it. And, um, like I said, I just keep returning to it. And when I think of the best films of the decade, I think of the movies that kind of like defined my movie viewing and my concept of like, what is a good movie right now? And beginners like so instantly became a benchmark that there was no way to deny it. I mean, it's, it's funny because I think when I think about its place in the decade and, and it's, um, it's legacy really is that you bring up the other film that came out with a precocious dog in the same year. And I really can't remember the last time I thought twice about the artist, you know, like don't get me wrong. The artist pulled in really <laughs> neat trick and the artist is charming for what it wants to be, but the artist is leaning really, really hard on a lot of what came before it. Right. This movie is not pulling. It's, it's not leaning on a trick as much, you know, Case in point, yeah, the dog can talk to us in subtitles, um, but they don't they don't come back to that very often. They only really kind of do it every once in a blue moon. And I mean, that that's that's kind of the, the difference between the two is one is talking about an honest emotional moment that in some way, shape or form, whether or not your parent dies suddenly or has a long bout with something or whether or not your parent comes out of the closet or not, you are going to go through some version of this. And, mm. you know, not everybody is like the artist, a, a, an actor trying to find their place in the world. So it's, it's, it's unexpected in the way that it, that really kind of keeps going, you know, 10 years now after it was debuted at a film festival. Um, you know, plumber is, incredible in this movie it's 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 nuts because on the one hand it's his story even though he really he is a supporting actor like there is a lot of times where hollywood will play fast and loose with who's a lead and who's a supporting he comes and goes quite a bit it really is much more oliver's story than it is hal's but every time hal's around like i mean he really latches into you again the movie does so many things right that other movies have tried and failed. Like you've got the, the older man who finally comes out as, as being gay and it doesn't make him a, a victim or a martyr and it never robs him of agency. And he becomes like a, a figurehead for his son to like try to live up to. But he also, it doesn't like marginalize him. It doesn't tokenize him. It doesn't valorize him. Just the way that the movie so deftly captures everyone as a person. Kind of like the dog. It doesn't turn it into a gimmick. Like the one of the first times 
Hal goes out uh, as, as a gay man. He goes to this club and he comes home and he calls Oliver and he's like, Oliver, I just heard this wonderful music. And he's like, yeah, dad, that sounds like house music. And Hal is like, ah, house music. And he writes down house writes down. music. You know, it's like the movie very handily could have come back to that kind of joke right like aren't old right. people funny aren't old gay people even funnier but it moves right. on. like he's a man who is incredibly out of his depth and that oh, yeah. that scene even like it begins with that kind of funny like he's waking up his son and i think he even says like i'm not sorry yeah yeah um because he's just so happy that he's getting to live this life and he you know he talks about house music and then um it shows him like sitting alone at the bar with a drink and Oliver asks, like, if you met anyone, and he said, oh, you know, like, young gay men don't want an old guy like me. But, like, even though he clearly has that kind of sense of having missed maybe, like, the better part of being, like, a young gay man, he's still just so invigorated that he's getting to do it at all. Yeah. Because it's not something that he ever thought he could. And so that balance of, like, the joy and sadness of, like, where you're at and, like, being alone but the the opportunity that that presents you is just so good like it's so it's like i keep saying it's such like a miraculous movie in the way that it's able to thread all of these different things without ever feeling like it's trying too hard or is really pushing to make a point which is even more miraculous because oliver has like a recurring voiceover with his little illustrations or with like almost uh wes anderson-esque like um models and like clips and you know old pictures and stuff where he's actively talking about the themes that this movie wants to touch on but it never feels wrong like it ne- it, it feels as though this is what this character feels and thinks like and it's a window into his mind rather than the movie stopping to make a thesis. Well, I mean, I think that is that's a tribute to Mike Mills because apparently this is uh semi-autobiographical And I think that like what you're talking about is this gimmick that the movie plays. And I mean, one of Mike Mills, other movies, 20th century women plays the same sort of gimmick where they'll put up, they'll say, okay, so this is 2003. This is what the sun looked like. This is what the president looked like. These are people, these are people in love. This Mm -hmm. is 1955. And, and, and it kind of goes into this little, art house and this kind of like museum gallery criterion edition very twee highfalutin idea okay which will either endear you to this movie or put you off it entirely the thing is it's so while it well it is a gimmick that comes and goes um it doesn't overtake the movie it's it it is a trick that the movie likes to play a few times but I don't think it ever gets in the way of what this movie is there to do. Not to use the M word again, but it's miraculous that it never feels like it is because there are so many movies that will try something like that. And I mean, I just, I just watched John Q for (laughs) um, my podcast. Why? And there are legitimately parts of that. One of our guests wanted to, (laughs) we, we just like reached out to, to like some of our, you know, like the high, higher level, like, you know, well-known movie writers and stuff. And we're just like, since everything's going crazy and since, you know, I'm not the 17th person to ask you to talk about, you know, the new 
I don't know, like to talk about Parasite. Like, what's a movie that you'd never thought that you'd have the opportunity to spend two hours talking about? And gotcha. one of them said John Q. And we were like, sure. Like, we unabashedly love Denzel, so let's talk about John Q. Okay. And John Q is a movie where the characters will legitimately turn into MSNBC talking heads. Yeah. I just to go want- over, like, healthcare, the HMOs, <laughs> gun control. And it's just like, that's a movie that screeches to a halt because it cannot balance that into character but this movie will stop for a slideshow and you'll still feel like you're grounded in the emotional truth of the characters yeah i just want to point out that when i ask my guests to suggest movies i get to talk about beginners and when you ask your guests to suggest (laughs) movies you're talking about john q i don't want to say you're doing it wrong but i think you're doing it wrong um (laughs) Uh, we, maybe yeah we, we have ewan mcgregor in this movie who is a goddamn national treasure um god bless you scotland for giving us ewan mcgregor um he wears grief in a movie this is now the second dispatch out of four that we're talking about grief he wears his grief and his weariness you know in a very very specific way through this movie like you know he's not going through the movie uh looking like unshaven and not put together he you know he can still dress himself i mean he wakes up looking like ewan mcgregor so that's a help um yeah his hair just flops yeah, so perfectly you know I'm, i his eyes were, just do that we're gonna we're gonna talk about it later you know like the uh the thing that you want to take out of this movie like tangible or intangible yeah. i didn't choose ewan mcgregor's hair <laughs> but i came very close to choosing ewan mcgregor's hair um, what I love about him in this movie is, is, is that the way he embodies grief and weariness, you know, and, and, and it's, it's not an easy place for an actor to find. It's not really what we're used to seeing McGregor do. He's usually in these movies where he's playing something much bigger, whether it's a villain in birds of prey or even, or whether it's, uh, you know, this storyteller in big fish or Lord knows whether it's Obi-Wan Kenobi, He's used to playing things much more charismatic than here where he's got to play it dialed down. And in this movie, he just every scene that he's in, he finds the center so well. This isn't a register that he gets to play that much. It's it was kind of maybe one of the reasons why I liked Dr. Sleep so much. Yeah, is that like he shows up like drunk and depressed and then like you know cleans up a bit and is is like just living a humble life and i'm like hey it's the guy it's bolivar from beginners he's back (laughs) i mean but yeah his his flamboyant turns like he was the best part of birds of prey which is a terrible thing to say about like a very female-centric movie but like if i had a takeaway from that movie it's that ewan mcgregor needs to just somehow come back and play this guy again I don't, there's just something about his voice. Like I remember after like in college, my best friend killed himself and I just remember hearing my voice change into that kind of like autopilot, weary, broken, almost exasperated. Like, like at the party when he's talking with people yeah, and you can almost hear his voice, the, the concept of like, I don't know why I'm here either. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. I why really I don't feel dog. like I'm fit for human consumption. Yeah. And I am so sorry that you have to deal with me. It's so much in it, you know, like it, it, like he, he wears it at work. There's times where he's trying to muscle through it um, with Anna, who we haven't really got to yet. And it's, it's everything. It's, it's him. He's, he's guy who's on some level still grieving his mom. He's watching his dad 
take on this new chapter and he has to deal with him slowly dying. And then, yeah, we, we get the whole thing after when he's dealing with the after effects of of all of it. It's an emotion that if you give it to an actor and they miss, they're going to miss way wide. You know, it's, they yeah. don't usually just miss by my by an inch. They're usually off by a mile. And, and McGregor is amazing. We've got Anna's note. Uh, Melanie Laurent as Anna, uh, who I love in this movie. We've got her note. Why are you at a party if you're sad? Now, yeah. first of all, I got to ask, does this movie cheat in the way that it writes so much? Because everything from Arthur talking to all of the little notes to his little doodles, you know, the whole thing is supposed to be show, don't tell. There's a lot of times where this movie is telling. I don't think so, again, because there's a lot of personality. Oliver's illustrations very much hold a lot of his his. <laughs> his outlook in them. Right. And it's almost funny. Cause he at one point says like, it's another band that wants an album cover. Like you do one thing good once. And that's all people want from you. <laughs> and when she's writing in, in the, the, um, the notepad, you're still getting her like facial reactions and all of these other kind of like little nonverbal cues from her. So I think it's almost, it's almost more challenging to have it be that way because you're depending so much on, again, these actors being able to give the emotional truth of their characters without resting on like, you know, the break of a voice or, you know, uh, like the, the way they're like words might tremble coming out. It's, it's such a more delicate balancing act. There's actually kind of a sweet little symmetry to, Anna having to write her notes and, you know, to Arthur every once in a while, like having a subtitle of a thought is, you know, <laughs> Oliver can't really articulate all of his thoughts. He's got a, He's got a million of them at any given moment, and he doesn't know what he thinks or what he feels from moment to moment. So if he can't really articulate it and has to rely on other things, it, it, it's actually kind of apropos that we've got Anna writing her notes and and uh, Arthur speaking in subtitles, because why not? You know, if, if if one of them can't communicate properly, let's just hang all, all of them back. Well, also, all of Arthur's little subtitles are definitely in Oliver's voice. <laughs> like, there's no way that the dog is legitimately thinking, tell her the darkness is about to consume us unless something <laughs> drastic happens. Like... Like that's the type of you know you look into the eyes of an animal and you see yourself reflected back. So like he's in that uh, place, and Arthur's probably like, "You're in charge." Like I don't know what to do. Like you brought me into this bathroom, and he's looking at this dog who just looks confused and maybe a little overwhelmed. And he, in his own mind, is like, "This is what the dog is saying to me because this is what I am saying to myself." I love the way that the the different time frames are kind of wended together. Yeah. Because it is, you know, a lot of it is Hal, and then there's a lot of it that's Oliver. And then it'll sometimes go back in time to younger Oliver and his mother. And his father is this kind of unknowable, distant figure, which is so strange to see when you see Hal being so gregarious and open in the modern times. There's never been a point when I was like, oh, I missed that. Like, it's it feels so so open and honest and and upfront each time I've watched it. Did you, have you noticed anything new about it? And obviously I don't know if you have the same like 
recurring relationship with this movie that I do. I do not. I've seen this movie a grand total of three times. Thank you, Letterboxd. One thing that I, I think of just off the top of my head is, yeah, you've got these two facets of Oliver's life where his father is so omnipresent and, you know, the, the early part of his life where his father is basically a ghost. And you think in your head, well, yeah, he's a ghost because he's living with a secret and he's taking every opportunity he can to explore that secret. You know, he, he, mm -hmm. they, they say earlier on where like the only way he could be with another man was, was in a bathroom and he had to make sure he was really discreet about it. Cause if he got arrested, that was it for his career. Um, so yeah, so when he can finally admit who he is and what he is and what he wants, he's going to live that openly and happily and proud because for whatever 80 years of his life, he, he could not. What I noticed on rewatch, I mean, besides the fact that it, it hits, differently now that I have different experiences than I did 10 years ago is mm -hmm. there are little things that, that jump out at me. And one of the ones was Oliver's inability to do the liner notes. It's one of those things where it should just be a simple box for him to check, right? Yeah. Band comes in, band says, Hey, we saw those portraits you did for this other band. Can you do us like that? And we'll pay you money. And he is thinking in his head, no, nah, no, nah, I, I got a better idea. I'm going to do this. And they come back and they're like, no, 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 we really just want you to do the pictures. And he goes, okay, okay, I got it. We'll come back in like two weeks and I'll show you. And two weeks later, he's like, no, 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 I did this this time. And it's something altogether <laughs> different that's still close to the last thing that's miles away from just do three little doodles. And I mean, it's, it's this great little shorthand into how kooky things can get when you're grieving you know you can yeah. all of a sudden decide you want to build a boat you know you right. all, i have become fixated and there is no way out of this now yeah yeah and i think for oliver it's i am gonna work but i don't want to just do what's handed to me i want to use it as a way to express myself and it's 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 a mm. it's a detail i probably would have missed the first time i would have been like why can't he just do the job uh that now i kind of i understand a little bit more seeing it in others and seeing how it's it'll throw you for a very unexpected loop that is not at all logical except in that you know when you say this person is grieving so for a little while they're not going to always be always logical that's one of those things where i feel like i picked up on that because i had been through that yeah like this, this movie and Manchester by the sea were just movies that my brain, when it picked up on like what they were doing, just began to absorb them like a sponge. Right. And it became impossible. It, it, it it's almost like I, I received it perfectly the first time. And every time beyond that is just like uh, me reliving that and, and qualifying it and affirming exactly what I got from it. Yep. Um, Which is just, a really weird way to live because a lot of like any movie you can watch and just be like, Oh, I never realized that like in home alone, like the, the ticket got thrown out with the pizza and like all this other stuff. But these movies, I'm just like, Nope, I was zeroed in. This is a story that's fixated on our changing relationship with our parents. And that, mm. that is something that just does not change. Right. Like it, like no matter, no matter how close or how distant you are from your parents, like what your, what your relationship is when you sit down and watch a movie, it is going to 
continue to change over time as you get older, they get older, once they pass away, like th- things are gonna, it, it's a, it's a weird evolution that you don't really think about as a child. And right. when you see that reflected in a film, especially when you see it reflected with this kind of honesty, a lot of this movie is him discovering exactly why he is so upset and he is affected so much. Like, you know, obviously his father passed away not so long after his mother passed away, but there's a whole other emotional level that he's like not dealing with in that great moment at the end when um, Hal's boyfriend is talking to him, uh, Andy, and Andy says like, you know, I know that you like didn't like me. And uh, Oliver says, it's not that like, you know, I didn't keep my distance because of that. It's because he loved you so much. And then they hug and like they're crying and then I start crying because I'm just like, it's so beautiful that like he's he's grown to understand like that he's not just mourning his father, but he's also mourning everything that his father lost as well. Yeah. It's It's just, oh, my God. It's yeah. No, it's it's and, and that's the thing. Like you don't you don't get those kinds of moments in you don't get those kinds of moments in movies in general. And yet as as you go through life, you do feel those kinds of moments like on both sides like on the one hand you'll have that moment where you'll be like dude i really needed you why the hell didn't you call and that there could be a perfectly reasonable answer for it but you never got it you know it, 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 it's mm-hmm. it's one of those things and again you don't see those kinds of things in movies i mean you know it's it's also fixated on how the child becomes the parent, right? And how, like, when it comes down to uh, a parent that's dying slowly, you've got to do everything from trying to tell them to take it easy to, you know, hey, why are you telling them that you're turning a corner even though you've got stage four cancer? There is no stage five. And your parent is like, yeah, that's right. There is no stage five. You know, there's just three (laughs) other stages. That's not what that means. It just means there's three other stages. (laughs) I mean, he's... I mean, it's moments like that that truly like he earned every accolade that he got for this movie. Yeah. Because again, it's it would be so easy for him to come off as like a coot or someone who's in denial. But it seems like th- he truly has like just embraced everything that's happening to him as like a part of the journey. And it, you could call it a coping mechanism if you want, but it really comes off more like he's been through so much already. And this is just another thing that he's going to get through with his his optimism. Yeah, we haven't talked too much about Anna and Oliver's relationship in in the in the course of this movie. I like how the movie is very aware that it is a relationship bred of two incredibly lonely people who are both dealing with some incredible sadness, who are now concerned that they will either drag the other person down or not be enough for the other person. Mm-hmm. Um. She actually has a line that basically pins that. But again, it's it's a credit to this movie and, and to the acting that she can say that out loud. And it does, in fact, feel like the type of thing that you would say to someone that you care about after having thought about it for a long time. It's not part of like a really overwritten Sorkin-esque dialogue sequence where it's like five minutes of witty repartee back and forth. Right. It's like he goes and finds her as she's sulking alone. And she says that, and there's really nothing else to say. Like, it's now out there, and it's a known quantity. I think that they are both just really good. And I like the fact that their relationship isn't there to fix either of them. 
but that it is something that they can hold on to that they both know that they want and that they have to actually like struggle and try very hard to make work. What I like about their relationship is that it comes out of nowhere, you know, like it's, it, they're, they're just two people who meet at a party who happen to sort of speak the same language. Like they're, they're on the same emotional frequency, even though they're both going through very different shit. They're just, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're both, you know, they're both dialed to magenta at the same time. And their ups and downs are not through any kind of actual overly played emotional moment where one of them, you know, forgets a, forgets a detail or says something insulting or whatever. It's just, it's two people that are really trying to connect and every once in a while they're just realizing that they, they missed a step somewhere. And it's like, mm-hmm. I, I thought I could, I thought this would make me happier than it is. Or I woke up the other day and I realized I feel sad and I just didn't know how to tell you. And that's the thing. Their, their ups and downs, especially their downs, their ups are just kind of following the road wherever it happens to go, whether it's stealing roller skates or doing graffiti or whatever. But yeah. their downs are not through something that actually happened to one or the other. It's just one or the other looking at the situation and saying, either I am not what you need me to be, or I thought I this would be what I needed and it's not. And just taking a step back, not even saying we're done and storming off or whatever, but just kind of quietly slinking away. And again, one of those things that you don't see in movies all that often, but happens in life all the time. It it is another good emotional truth that this movie gets to is that when you bond with someone in a period of sadness and then you become happy and then you feel yourself slipping back into the sadness again, you you both feel terrible about it (laughs) because they're they're thinking – Oh, whatever made me special to this person is gone now because now they're back in their misery. And you're thinking, I am letting this person down because I let them believe that they had fixed me or something, and now it's it's broken again. Yeah. No. And that's it, a very that's a very difficult thing to to deal with. That it's hard to at once forgive yourself for it and to make the other person understand that it is nothing that they have done, that this is just like the the cycle that you're yeah. gonna have to go through. It's equally difficult to write, to direct, to act, and to execute on every level. For a movie that, again, I said at the beginning of this section, has a very, very simple plot, there's a lot of complexity within that plot. So this is the point in the dispatch where I talk about the film's place within the the 2010s. And I've been using this series as a way to kind of reflect on where we came from and where we're going and all that jazz. And what is it for you, you think about beginners that encapsulates the decade gone by? Oh man, there's a, there's a lot. Um, I think that on the one hand, just the, the focus on, um, you know, Hal and his, his, um, coming out of the 20th century and into the more accepting 21st, and embracing his true self and aligning himself with a lot of these um, LGBT, or I guess just explicitly, you know, gay um, organizations, is a lot of the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the uh, the expanded push for LGBT rights, um, and then I think just that that sense of 
of what what Oliver says, where it's like, you know, our lives were simple. Like we didn't I didn't go to a war like up until yeah. recently. I didn't have to survive a plague. Yeah. Like, yeah. What right do I have to be this unhappy? And it's just the fact that, like, you do have the time to sit down and feel bad. And it's funny. I read a, I think it was a Daily Beast article. That was like, you know, uh, people with anxiety and depression, like a certain subset of them during this time of, you know, COVID-19, coronavirus, quarantine, shelter in place are like thriving. Really? Because you, you, when you have a comfortable life, all you can do if you have that kind of a mindset, which is something that I know because I kind of got it, is wonder when the next bad thing is going to happen. That quote, our good fortune allowed us to feel sadness our parents didn't have time for. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that was like you could stem it all the way back to, to, to 2000 if you want. That is that has been this generation's luxury. And I, I, I don't say that as a dig. I say that that is an actual genuine statement, perhaps not only mm -hmm. it's luxury, but it's benefit that it gave us time to contemplate ourselves and our effect on each other and our effect on the world uh, because we weren't dealing with the whole damn Western society being a garbage fire every other day. Like it seemed to be for much of the 20th century. Um, yeah. and, and that is what this film encapsulates about the last, the last decade is we were able to feel sad. We were able to let that run its course um, sometimes for the worse, not always, sometimes for the better. And that's one of those things that I think that when we look back on history and see, you know, now things may very well change over the next five years, that may be a drastically different statement. You know, everybody yeah. who's kind of just graduating now and entering the workforce, people who are just getting married, people who are just having kids, they will not have time to feel sad. You know, that, yeah. that, that, that is not their good fortune. But over the last 10 years, that was their good fortune. And, you know, it, it might have made them better people. I feel like Oliver is a better person. I feel like Anna is a better person. I feel now that, you know, Hal had a chance to feel some sadness and have some self-reflection. He's a better person. And it's because they had that good fortune. Well, we end every uh, piece here on the Winchester Chronicles with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible you would take away from the movie and keep, uh, since we're not doing uh, scores, but we are still doing the souvenir. Brian J. Rowan, if you could keep anything from beginners, what would you take? I want Arthur. Everybody wants give me Arthur. That, give me that dog. I'm going to tell your dog, man. I think she'd love Arthur. I think they'd get along. <laughs> There's a part of me that in my brain is like, okay, so Lana's like eight to nine years old. It's like, you know, in the next two or three years, I've got to get another dog so that she, like she, she can needs, train it with me. Yeah. She needs a buddy. And she has like a companion. Yeah. I get you. All right. So I think Arthur would be perfect for that. I agree. Okay. And we've already said that we cannot, we, we cannot really take Ewan McGregor's hair as a, uh, as a souvenir. I, I mean, listen, Right this moment, if we're talking about me sitting here on April 30th, 931 Eastern Time, what do I take away from this movie? I take away the ability to sit in a goddamn bookshop and browse. That is, <laughs> I, yeah. you know, it's been, I, I can't, I can't afford it right now, but man, do I want to do that. And that bookstore, 
I, I love those kinds of bookstores where things are just kind of all over the place. Uh, there's there's no real comfy place to sit. Um, everything in there is old. Um, yeah. I, I, I love the bookstore in Los Angeles that they find. It's probably an actual bookstore. I hope it's still open. I don't know. I feel like it was a lot of location shooting. Like just the way it feels, feels like a lot of locations. It feels like, I mean, the thing I like about beginners and movies like beginners is it feels like very genuine Los Angeles, like a very, very mm-hmm. lived in Los Angeles, not the kind of movie LA that you see in, in more kitschy, flashy, shiny movies. This is, I feel like yeah. these are actual neighborhoods, like right down from the fact that the first time we see him talking to Arthur, he's sitting on a bench from the 1984 Olympics. And on that same level from that same date that they were on, I, I thought about taking away the tacos. I mean, I haven't had takeout taco tacos truck. in a long time. So that, that is a, that is a good one. Um, there you go, folks. That's beginners. Um, a movie that I would not have thought about, uh, it, when I first set out to do this series and I'm really grateful that Brian J. Rowan mentioned it um, whatever you think of uh, this movie let me know Brian at the matinee.ca Twitter matinee underscore CA Facebook facebook.com slash dark matinee what do you think of Mike Mills beginners we are going to take a quick break here and come back with some more movies on the other side so uh, join us in a moment won't you back he's brian rowan i'm ryan mcneil it's winchester chronicles dispatch number four we've been talking about beginners by director mike mills this is the time where we flip the other side talk about some further reading further viewing further uh, further just, just general <laughs> furtherment uh get us started mr rowan what was a title that you thought about uh, after watching Mike Mills Beginners. So uh, we already mentioned Manchester by the Sea. Uh, don't think got to do that again. Uh, another one that weirdly crops up a lot in my brain when I think about this movie is the movie Shame from Every 2011. Time you're on this show, you use it as an excuse to steer the conversation towards shame. Got to talk about shame. Oh, Not enough man. people talk about shame. Okay, um, let's talk about shame. <laughs> Steve McQueen's 2011 uh, drama about a sex addict living in New York. Um, I think, again, this is one of those things where it's like you've got a man, uh, much like Oliver, who appears to be fine, but has like this this deep uh, abiding loneliness and sadness that doesn't make a lot of sense from the outside. Uh, Oliver has, at the very least, you know, dead parents to kind of pivot his sadness towards, though it's clear that he had that sensation before they were even gone. And in shame... You have uh, Michael Fassbender's character, Brandon, who is a successful, super handsome, fit, well-off dude whose issue is that he is addicted to sex. And it would be very easy for this movie to be laughable because it's like, oh, this poor man, he's so handsome and successful that he can get laid whenever he wants. But the movie is so thoughtful and so real and it really does bring you over to his side of like understanding how much this thing is like corrupting him from the inside and like destroying his ability to function it's crazy because on the one hand you've got beginners 
where Oliver is just an absolute raw nerve. Like he is feeling everything. He like he is feeling the friggin' moon rising every day. You know, <laughs> it, like it, yeah. if if a crow sits on the wire outside of his building, I'm sure he feels it somehow. And on the other hand, in shame, you have Fassbender's character, Brandon, who doesn't feel at all, you know, and yet like they're, they're both clearly closed off from so much around them, but it's because one of them is basically a hyper empath and the other, it just cannot find any joy or any sadness in anything. He just needs to do this thing so that he can feel anything. Right. Um, he's a, you know, it's easy to call someone a sex addict, but I think sexual compulsive is like the more descriptive term. He, yeah. he, he does engage in it compulsively, seemingly without joy. And the, the time that he goes out with a woman and actually likes her and then tries to take her home, there's a part of his brain that's like, this isn't what we do this for. Yeah. Yeah. So no, shut it down. Happens like you're not, you're not, you're not gonna, you're not gonna corrupt this thing that you have with this woman by doing this other thing that is awful. I mean, the other thing that the two movies have in common is they're both directed by visual artists. Uh, Shame, you've Mm -hmm. got Steve McQueen. Um, Mike Mills um, is 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 a multimedia artist of all sorts of avenues, which you can kind of tell in both cases. I think you can tell that in the work. These are both movies. I mean, I made a joke about how it's very criterion twee you know highfalutin but at the same time i could see both of these movies playing at a screening room in moma and fitting in completely yeah you know so we're not going to devote too much time to because oh no 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 you've brought this up every show i will put in the show notes every time brian has been on this podcast and i guarantee (laughs) you shame comes up so i'm cutting you off there um my first other side it is an album and a short film that goes along with the album that Michael Mills did uh, two years ago. Michael Mills did a an album with the band The National, who is one of my uh, very, very favorite bands of the moment. Um, and it's called I'm Easy to Find. Basically, when The National came time to make their next record, they were working with Mike Mills and, and he was kind of giving them he was basically directing it's the same way that they would normally work with a producer. He was saying, so I've got this in mind in terms of a story and a narrative and a little short film. And I've got these themes going around in my head. And why don't you take that and see if you can run with that and turn it into a record. So they do, they turn it into this record that does not exactly follow the trajectory of the records that they were doing before. Like there, there are three or four records before follow this very specific arc the same way that any other band follows the same sort of arc like if you listen to revolver rubber soul and sergeant pepper all in a row you can you're like oh yeah this is the this band going down this same road and even though it kind of has these little twists and turns i know what road they're on same thing the national the last few records they've done same sort of thing this record comes along it's much quieter. It's much more arty. And of course, you understand when you find out it was it wasn't exactly a concept album. It was this little like artistic creation that Michael Mills came and decided to do with them. So on the one hand, the record, I think, is amazing. So I'll, I'll include like um, a link to Spotify in the show notes. But then along with the album, there is also a short film 
called I Am Easy to Find. And it stars Alicia Vikander. And it's about a woman from birth to death. Now, I do think it's interesting. I do think it's gorgeously shot. It, it, like Mike Mills is completely incapable of filming a bad frame. However, what we talked about in Beginners, where there was the gimmick of things being written, um, that goes into hyperdrive with I Am Easy to Find because there are a, basically every scene has a subtitle of she is experiencing heartbreak for the first time. She has just had her period. She knows mm-hmm. that her husband is with another man, like yeah. from shot to shot to shot. So the first time I saw this movie, I actually had to stop looking at the bottom of the screen. I just kind of had to soak in the imagery and not read the, the not read the caption. So it's not perfect, but I do think if somebody liked Beginners, that the album is certainly well worth a listen. And the short film, again, it's like, it's less than 30 minutes um and if i can find an embed clip for it i'll put that in the show notes too it's worth a watch i've already googled it because i now want to see that of course (laughs) are are, band you're into at all not not really your beat um they're not really my beat i've heard them and i like them but they're not someone that i like follow there's i mean there's good singles off this record so even if you didn't want to listen to the whole thing end to end because i know that that's not really a thing we do anymore i want to say that i turned against them when i first heard their name (laughs) <laughs> because I don't like uh, a definite article in front of an adjectival, but, like, an I ad, mean, like an adjective. It's like on, the you, weirdest, stupidest reason but, to turn against someone. But I'm just like, I don't like the mind that they thought of that as a name. But you, you saw, you saw the commitments. A band that has a the as the, t- as, the as the first word. Those are the best bands. The Beatles, the Rolling Stones. But the okay, but the Beatles the, the? and the Rolling Stones. Those are, are nouns right? right but the national national is not a noun national is an adjective <laughs> <laughs> that just makes them way too dickish yeah um, there's something so preening about that where i'm like the national what guys <laughs> <laughs> anthem bank gotcha come on um yeah if you don't want to give the whole record a listen i would say um two songs off the album you had your soul with you or light years are both really good songs to listen to uh i've taken a long time with that what else you got as far as further reading for beginners. So I felt like, you know, a lot of, a lot of what I was going to talk about was, um, heavy dramas, obviously like guilt and sadness and stuff. And I was like, you know, we probably got to stick on that, but what if we added wolves to the mix too? What? Oh no. How do you keep doing this to me? (laughs) The problem with the problem with bringing me on to talk about beginners is, you're going to get a lot of greatest hits because the be- beginners is one of my greatest hits. I do and this is, to myself. I really, I have, no, I have nobody to blame. And again, it's, it's like, it's not like, um, I don't even remember what I brought up when I was on for knives out, but I'm sure that I did not bring up shame and the gray for, or at least, you know, that much. You didn't bring up the but gray, yeah. but I'm pretty sure you brought up shame somehow. Which is weird. Cause the gray has got some knives out. Um, <laughs> oh my God. and broken bottles. <laughs> Uh, tell people but about yeah, the gray the gray is a 2011 film directed by joe carnahan uh, it stars liam neeson and um i didn't even think about this i think that james badge dale is in both of those films <laughs> oh my god okay i'm pretty sure james badge dale is in the gray <laughs> um yeah he is so it's the james badge dale cast uh. um Legitimately, James Badgedale is one of my favorite actors. If I see him in something or know that he's going to be in something, I instantly become more interested. 
Um, people are furious with me that I haven't watched Rubicon because he was the main character in that. And I just never, I never had the opportunity and it's not on AMC streaming. But anyway, um, so the gray is about a bunch of people who work in the oil fields of Alaska who crash in the tundra and they're beset upon by wolves. And it is about fighting to survive, but not in a, a crass kind of basic man against nature kind of way, but in like an existential, like, why are you staying alive? What is there to stay alive for? What does it mean to try to stay alive? And it, it, it is a lot of the same themes that in infect is a bad verb, but <laughs> oh it's what I'm choosing. A lot of the movies that I love, I have my unpublished top of the 2010s list that I have not um, really put out yet. But to give you an idea, Beginners, A Ghost Story, The Grey, A Hidden Life, Manchester by the Sea, Melancholia, Shame, Silence, and then for some reason, Shaun the Sheep movie. Like, clearly I have a specific kind of film that touches me most. And I think the fact that all these movies came out within a year of each other, they are forever melded in my mind as like the year and the triptych of films that really spoke to me about a lot of things that I had been feeling that I felt like a lot of modern movies didn't capture well. And so they will just forever be unified in my brain as like, Oh, you need a movie that perfectly encapsulates the guilt of living past someone that you love or this concept that you might be responsible for the pain of others or something. It's like, well, here, pick one of these. Are you, looking for a romantic hopeful semi comedy drama then you got beginners are you looking for a dour feel bad extravaganza but with some great acting and beautiful uh you know cinematography and great directing then there's shame do you want to see liam neeson battle wolves then you've got the gray do we ever actually see him punch the wolves like i know one of the images in the marketing of this movie was him taping the broken bottles to his fists like he was about to go box the wolves but if memory serves we never actually see him go toe-to-toe with the wolves so one of the so my my experience watching this movie because i was just like i want to see a liam neeson fight some wolves and the longer it went on and the longer that the wolves were just kind of this ethereal phantom force and and as more men died from things (laughs) that maybe weren't even related to the wolves but just the struggle to survive it, it it started really like rocking me to my core. And then when we finally got to that centerpiece of the marketing where he's, you know, the, the music is swelling and he's putting all the men's uh, wallets together as like a little like cairn of their names and their lives. And, and then he starts taping the things to his hands and like he tapes the knife to his hands. He tapes the bottles to his hands and it becomes clear that like he is not running away from this fight. Like he has now made it impossible for him to drop his weapons and he will fight to his last dying breath. Right. I remember sitting in the theater and just saying, please cut away before they actually fight. Yeah. Like, please do that. And the movie did it. And I just like stood up. I didn't start cheering or (laughs) clapping. I just stood up because it was like, it's like if you were looking at someone on a subway and you were just like that guy, like, you know, his fly is down. He's got food on his face. And I like, I just need him to like, 
you know, push the hair out from his eyes. And he did all of it and then looked at you. <laughs> you would just like stand up and be like, oh, shit, he's a witch. <laughs> and so it was that kind of sensation where it's like, oh, my God, this director was so clearly in my head and I was in his and I'm so happy to be here. I, I would pay so much money to go to AFI and hear you introduce these movies as a triple feature and, and, and basically just try to listen to you give this introduction of how shame beginners and the gray works as a triple feature. If I ever had the ability to do that, I would, I would absolutely, do it. Like I would sit in the back row so I could watch people's reaction, like hear people's reactions and watch for people. But I, I mean, I'm not saying you'd land it, but I think you'd get close. How would you even like, what, where would you start? Like what, what would, what do you think that the, the, the asking, series would have to be? Brian J. Rowan talks about the existential trilogy of 2011. And no, it's not the trilogy you think. But here we go. <laughs> no, I'm no, I'm I'm legitimately curious. Like, which would you think would be the first, second, and third movie? In that, no, I'm t- beginner shame and the gray. I like wh- what okay. order do you yeah. show them? I have no idea what order you show them in. I'm, I'm as I said, I'd be really curious to hear your 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 thesis in before I think every that, movie. <laughs> I think that you named the order. I think it is beginner's shame and the gray. I, yeah, you can't end with shame. Like you know that that's just no. that's just encouraging people to do bad. Bad choices. Oh, yes. All right, fine. I'll allow it. Good work. Um, well, I, <laughs> I was I was going with the more dour, sad, uh, solitary, uh, easy answer for my other choice on the other side. Um, I went back uh, two years before Beginners uh, to another film uh, directed by somebody who does not typically direct films. I think that's kind of. If you throw Joe Carnahan out of this mix, when you get people like Mike Mills and uh, Steve McQueen and the director who I'm about to talk about, that's one commonality amongst them all. Um, I went to 2009, uh, Tom Ford movie, A Single Man, starring Colin Firth. Oh, that's a great choice. Thank you. It's another movie where death is right there at the center. It's another movie where homosexuality is right there at the center. Um, I remember, without naming names... I remember podcasting about this movie uh, in the wake of the Oscar season and how I thought that uh, Colin Firth really was best actor for 2009 for this movie. And the podcaster at the time said, okay, here's all of a single man. Ready? Ready? Be sad. And I did not, I was not nearly as articulate then as I am now. So besides just saying, oh, come on, I I couldn't really refuse it. But the movie is, you know, similar to Beginners um, and Shame. You know, it is a story where the character is going through one thing, whether it's grief or sadness or compulsion or whatever, you can usually sum it down into one or two words. And yeah, in A Single Man, he is going through grief, but it's not just about him being sad, but it's also about him having to navigate these really, really strange waters. Um, Much like Beginners, and certainly much like Shane, it's a film that is 
visually very, very handsome. Uh, you know, it, it is not mm-hmm. a surprise that it comes from a guy who designs incredible suits uh, and incredible clothes. Um, and I thought that Colin Firth, like Colin Firth has been bringing the goods for years and always will. Like that, that, that man just wakes up with, uh, you know, with, with acting prowess. But I really thought that in this movie, he was able to do an awful lot in those moments where he wasn't saying or doing a whole heck of a lot. Like there are moments where he is able to kind of let out the big speech about like why we're afraid of that, which we cannot see and whatever. But there's also just a lot of moments where he has to dial it all back in because to get upset is to show his hand. And that's the whole thing is he's trying not to show his hand. You've seen this movie. I'm sure. I'm sure you, I, you dig this movie. I would imagine. Oh yeah, I love this movie. This movie is great. This that which made Nocturnal Animals so much more oh yeah confusing to watch. Oh my god, yeah. Um, and I and and I liked Nocturnal Animals. Me too. Not nearly as much as a single man, but yeah, I mean this this movie. The second that you said a single man, I had two images in my head, and one of them was Colin Firth with the glasses on, looking distraught. Yeah, <laughs> and the other was every time that the that he would feel like that little blush of happiness and the color would just shift in saturation a bit yeah like there's so many little good touches in this movie also the fact that matthew good is in this movie who is another man like james badge dale who if he is in a movie i instantly become interested (laughs) single man on the one hand yeah sure it is really a guy dealing with the death of his partner and not being able to properly grieve him so he spends hundred minutes being sad. Yeah. Okay. If you want to dial it down to its, you know, base level, that's what it is, but it's really, really not. It's, it's a very complex performance that you get when you get an actor like Ewan McGregor or like Michael Fassbender or Colin Firth, and you give them something really complicated to run with. Mm-hmm. Well, he was we also great in, um, Nicholas Holt, uh, just real quick, True History of the Kelly Gang, which is out on VOD now. I've been looking Let's for that. Let's Evil from, again. Uh, I, can't, I can't find that up here. It's killing me. Oh, uh, my God. That's I'm, so I, terrible yeah, for I, you. I, it's it's brutal. I, I, you know, I'm starving for content as it is. And then the content that there is out there, I can't lay hands on. If, if anybody knows where in Canada I can watch the Kelly Gang, please let me know. That is the fourth dispatch of the Winchester Chronicles. I'd like to thank Brian J. Rowan for coming by. Come on back on Monday, May 18th for our fifth dispatch, where we will be discussing Beasts of the Southern Wilds. Brian can be found on the film stage. What do you got coming up next week? John Q is already out. Uh, you can listen to True History of the Kelly Gang if you're able to find it, I guess. Shut up. Um, we're doing like a weird mix of stuff right now. Um, one of my co-hosts, Michael Snydell, is going to be doing like an art house spotlight where he gets uh, other people to come on and do quick little. I don't actually I don't know if they're quick. Um, <laughs> I'm not on it, so they must be a little faster because I can go on. But um, spotlights of of. Uh, important world and independent and classic cinema, which I outright said, I would love to do that, but I just simply do not have the time for it. So you <laughs> should do like a side story type of thing. Um, so he'll be, he'll be doing some of those. I think our next full review, which we're recording this coming weekend, which will probably be out Monday or Tuesday is going to be on catch me if you can. Nice. It, it, I'm, I'm wondering how I'm going to respond to that movie because I haven't seen it in a bit. And recently I've really begun to um, 
detest Spielberg and Janusz Kaminski working together. Oh, well, I am. Um, I've, I've grown super tired of the pools of light. I, I, I mean, I'm the wrong guy to ask cause he's my favorite director ever. Um, mm. and it's, that's one of his, uh, new century films that I think are among his best. Uh, so yeah. I'm, 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 I'm not going to say it ain't good. Uh, I would be curious how, how it works for you. I think it, I, I think of all of his films in the new century, that's certainly the one that is the most accessible, um, mm. make of that what you will, but I'll definitely tune in and hear how that goes. If people want to find yeah. you on Twitter, where can they follow you? I am at Brian J. Rowan. Uh, that is what I am at on everything because I am just really into my brand. <laughs> my site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, Apple, uh, everywhere that better podcasts are found. Uh, if you don't find my show in your platform of choice, let me know and I'll find a way to put it there. Uh, you get any ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. If you want to drop by and do an episode of the Winchester Chronicles or you have feedback on beginners, drop a dime in the comments section of the site. You can email ryan at thematinee.ca, Twitter where I'm matinee underscore ca, or facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Any final thoughts, Mr. Rowan? No, I got to mention shame and the gray, so I feel like I've done everything I came here to do. <laughs> I just walk into it every time. It's like Lucy and the bloody football. I was going to say, there's I, maybe I should have tried to like fit in some Backstreet Boys, too. But Oh, it's <laughs> April 30th. A different boy band. Guess what? It's going to be, be May. May. Right. For Brian, I'm Ryan. Wash your hands and call your person. Hey.